Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are at the end of our Revelation Bible study. Um, we talked this entire message series about the power of symbolism and how in prophetic writing, the prophets would use elements that had been introduced previously in the story to help us understand where we are in the story now. And so we talked about the importance of understanding these things that were literal objects that became symbolic, and then these prophecies that were symbolic then eventually turned into literal interpretations. And how in order to wrap our mind around the magnitude of what God is doing, we have to be familiar with this language. It's almost like when you were in school, um, I remember when my elementary school teacher was teaching us how to read a map, and I was just fascinated with this thing called the key down at the bottom right of the map. Without that, you can't get a scale for distance. You don't know how long a mile is unless you look down at the key, and you don't know what the dots are, or the triangles are, or what these little symbols are. There is always a key at the bottom that gives you an interpretation for how you're supposed to read the map, and the Bible is no different. There are symbols that are established in here that help us understand things moving forward. So we've been talking about that the whole time we've been in the book, but last week I went really, uh, I, well, not really far, I spent a great deal of time talking about how the Bible as a whole is a story. It's an entire story. So uh, uh, you don't look at the Bible as like, okay, Old Testament, and that's back then, and now we're New Testament times, and we can go back and reference this, but it's not important. It's all one story, and it's all pointing to the same guy, Jesus. And so when we talked last week about um, narrative and characters and plot, I ran across um, something in one of the commentaries I was reading. It's called Exalting Jesus in Revelation. It's a good commentary, I'd recommend it. But there was this diagram in it that kind of reinforced this idea of the storytelling all throughout the Bible. And what it did is it compared plot points from Genesis with plot points in Revelation. And it was just fascinating. I reproduced it for you and I thought that we could take a look at it today. I apologize for not bringing my laser pointer. It's in my bag back there, I won't get it, but um, my apologies. But if you look at this first slide, on the left-hand side you've got Genesis, and on the right-hand side you've got Revelation. And what we're looking at here is plot points at the beginning of the book, and then plot points at the end of the book. In Genesis 1-1, heaven and earth are created, and Revelation 21-1, new heavens and new earth are created. And you've got the sun is created. And then in Revelation, there's no need for a sun. And in Genesis, night is established. But in Revelation, there's no need for night. There's seas created in Genesis, but there's no more seas in Revelation. There's a curse in Genesis, and then the curse is erased in Revelation. Death enters history in 319 of Genesis, and death exits history in 21.4 Revelation. Man driven from paradise in 324, man restored to paradise in 22.14. That's what we're going to read today. Sorrow and pain begin 
and then sorrow and tears and pain end. The devil appears in Genesis 3.1 and he disappears in 2010. I wanted you to see this so that you can start wrapping your mind around how important it is to see this wonderful book as one wonderful book. And not to just split it up and kind of cut out parts that you don't like or you don't agree with, but just to understand that like this here, it's not your story, it's his story. You're, you, you, he invites you to become part of the story. He likes using you in the building of his kingdom, but this is his story. And these plot points continue as we get into Revelation chapter 22. In Genesis 2, there was a tree of life and a river flowing out of Eden to water the garden. So there was a garden in Eden. The garden of Eden was watered by this river that flowed out of Eden into the garden. And then in the garden, it split out into four other rivers that then fed the entire earth. And then in Revelation 22, we've got a tree of life again, and then a river of water that's flowing out of the throne of God. And the point is just to drive home how packed this story is with symbols that contain powerful meaning. But all of the meaning points to one person, Jesus. The imagery of rivers and trees, it all ultimately points back to one guy who's accomplishing one thing, the lamb, who alone is worthy, amen? So with that in mind, let's go ahead and let's read Revelation 22. Around here, we kind of read a little bit, then talk a little bit. So I'm gonna read the first five verses and then we're gonna break that down. Let's go to Revelation 22, verse one. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, and it was bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, I want you to picture this. I want you to picture this city, the new Jerusalem that we saw last week coming down out of heaven, and when John is beholding it, what is he describing? He's, and I, got, I see there's like these, these 12 little entranceways, and I see 12 foundations, and I'm seeing streets of gold, and everything's gorgeous and beautiful, and man, in the middle of the main street, there's this river flowing through the middle of the street. And then on either side of the river is this tree. I imagine this tree, it's just got like, it's got roots on this side and this side. It's just kind of sitting over the top, this river flowing underneath, and this tree's massive. And it's got all kinds of 12 different fruit on it, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Verse three, John continues and says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That's important, that's an important plot point. All the way back to the earlier story of Israel, 
the people who were, requ- who were given the responsibility to come and minister before the Lord were the priests, and they wore this outfit that had a name inscribed over their forehead on the hat they wore, and it said, Holy unto the Lord. John's describing to us with language he's familiar with, the stuff that he's seeing, and he's seeing like, now it's not just a priest who's wearing this, now everybody's a priest, and everybody's wearing this garment, and everybody's got the name of the lamb on their forehead. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, we didn't touch on this last week because I knew we were going to get here, so we're going to touch on it this week. And I've mentioned this a couple times throughout this message series. When we started and I was giving the introduction, there's this sense that the story is all one story, and so the key to understanding it resides in the symbols previously from the Old Testament, and I explain this kind of like a a database. There's information in the database, and that is pulled from here, and it is injected here as John is building this out. So John's saying, okay, what's the best way I can describe what I see? Well, I'm going to use language that my people are familiar with. So I'm going to use language like trees and rivers and names on foreheads. This is what I see because this is what I know. And the one who's giving John the vision is God, who is also the one who gave the instructions back in the Old Testament for how all this stuff is supposed to function. So the person giving the interpretation isn't us. We don't show up and give these symbols meaning. God, who gave the symbols to mankind, give the symbols meaning. So as we work through this, some of these things are found earlier in the book, not the book of Revelation, but the book of the Bible. And a key one is found in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 47. And we haven't done a series on Ezekiel. I had us read some Ezekiel before we got into Revelation, so perhaps you're familiar with it. But at the end of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is given this tour of a new temple that's built. And we're told that he's following this Um, this angel uh, who is also the imagery of what he's wrapped in is seen in Revelation, so it it looks a lot like Jesus. He's taken on this tour of this temple. Now, when Ezekiel wrote this, he was in exile in Babylon, so there's no more temple when he's writing this. The temple has been destroyed by Babylon. So Ezekiel is seeing this picture of a future temple and he's taken around and he's seeing all of the different priests and he's seeing all the functions and there's an altar there and there's a, there's a, a place for sacrifice, but there's, there's one thing that's missing there. There's no holy of holies. But this temple is really detailed. Everywhere you go, like he's told to actually even measure like the width of this thing and the length of this thing and and there's dimensions there. It's a functioning place of worship without a holy place. So if you're unfamiliar with what a temple or the tabernacle looked like, I want you to imagine like a large rectangle was the outside border, and then you'd enter into that rectangle and you'd have two large pieces of furniture. You'd have the altar, and you have the laver. At the altar, you'd make the sacrifices, and at the laver, you'd wash and be cleansed from all the blood of the sacrifice. 
And then there was this structure inside the rectangle that was another rectangle structure, and you'd enter into, <clears throat> excuse me, you'd enter into that, and the, the, the second rectangle was split into two, and the first room you'd enter into was the holy place. And in there, there was three pieces of furniture, the table of showbread, um, there was an altar of incense uh, right in front of the curtain, and then there was uh, a candlestick. And then beyond that, in the next room behind that, there was the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, the footstool of God, that was in the Holy of Holies. Now, when Ezekiel is taking this tour of the temple, he's seeing lots of this furniture, but there's no Holy of Holies, there's no Ark. But what he does see is flowing out from under the thresholds of this temple, kind of like the, the bottom of the doorway, is this river. And this river starts out kind of like a trickle, but Ezekiel says that he watches the river flow out from the temple, down into the streets, and then down through the nation of Israel, and it empties out into the Dead Sea, and when it empties out into the Dead Sea, it turns the Dead Sea alive again. It empties the Dead Sea of all of its salt water and life begins to grow, grow again. And if you're familiar with kind of the, the, the geography of Israel, you've got Jerusalem and then just south of that you've got this massive body of water called the Dead Sea and there's so much salt in it that nothing can live in it. Just a fun fact, down around that area is also where uh, looks like Sodom and Gomorrah used to reside probably why it's the Dead Sea. But this river, it flows down into the Dead Sea and it empties out into this thing that is not living and suddenly this living water has the power to make this thing that was once dead come alive again. Now I'm bringing this up because this is an example of what I talked about last week when I was talking about the Bible containing elements of a story. You've got character, plot, parallelism, expansion. This is an example of expansion. You've got this imagery that dates all the way back to Genesis. And the imagery is rivers and trees. What is the point of rivers and trees? Well, rivers, they're not sitting still, they're flowing. They're constantly moving somewhere. And they're feeding all the things along the bank as they're moving along. And we're also told that in the garden there were these trees, one you couldn't eat from, but other ones that they could eat freely of. And one of these trees was the tree of life. It was in the garden. And then we, we see those elements expanded throughout the story when God starts showing Ezekiel through a vision of what God wants to do in the world. He shows him a picture of a temple because temple is what Ezekiel understood. He just used to worship in a temple and now his temple is gone. So God's saying, look, I'm gonna do a new thing and it's kind of like a temple, but it's gonna be even better than a temple. So I want you to think temple, but don't just be restricted temple. It's gonna be like a temple, but it's gonna be way better than that. And you remember where the presence of God used to reside, Ezekiel? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's gonna be like that, but not like that. 
It's not gonna be like a box, it's gonna be like a river. It's not just gonna be a place where everybody's gonna go to. It's gonna be a thing that flows out of this temple and just goes out to all the dead places of the world and brings life everywhere. It's gonna be like that. Okay, now I'm starting to see how the story expands. And then in Revelation, God shows John this, using these same symbols, a picture that is, it, it frankly just blows our minds. Because what John sees is, oh, I kind of see what Ezekiel saw, but it's not a temple. Now it's a whole city. Now it's not just a little church or a little place of worship. Now it's the whole city. And the city is not actually even a city. The city is a whole people. So you're telling me That as we expand the story, that God never desired to live in houses made with the hands of man. His desire was always to be within his people, among his people, and his people be his home. Woo, that's good. I'm here for that. That's exciting. Because that means that the whole point of the story is not that we got to go somewhere to discover him. The, The point of the story is that he comes to where we are and wakes us up. And how is he telling the story? He's using the power of these symbols to tell the story again. Hey, you guys remember the power of a river? You know what a river can do? And so when John is seeing this picture, he's, he's like, man, I, I, I thought I understood rivers, but now in this new heaven and new earth, in the middle of the city of God, which is the people of God, I'm seeing the same river that used to bring dead things back to life. It's the cornerstone of this city. It's the thing that flows right through the middle of the people of God. And guess what it's doing? It's just bringing more and more and more life. It's just feeding everything. And what's the thing that it's primarily feeding right now? It's feeding this tree of life. And on this tree, there are 12 different kinds of fruit. I mean, that calls back to the database reference of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. 12 is the cornerstone of how God builds his stuff. There's 12 elders. So we're seeing all this imagery used over and over again, and then the imagery of the leaves are pulled in. Okay, so before the river flowed out and the river brought life to the nations. But now we're seeing in the story as it expanded that the river has brought life to the people or the tree and now the leaves growing on the tree are now bringing life to the nations. You see how fascinating this story is as you unfold the symbolism and how God is saying things to his people? One picture is worth a million words. And so as this is going through, the river is speaking of bringing power and life to the people of God. But that's not the only time that we've heard this imagery of river. Do you remember back in John 7, 37, 38, Jesus made uh, a promise to his people. Now what's interesting is that the guy who quoted this was John, the same guy who wrote Revelation. John is very familiar with rivers. He quoted Jesus as saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see how powerful this is? I bet you'll never look at a river the same way again and that's the way he wants it. 
See, because what's happening here is the angel is showing John this picture of eternity using biblical symbols, but the, but the imagery is not just for John to say, man, won't it be great one day when it's like that? The point of the imagery is to know what it will be like so that it influences the way you live today. The reason why this Bible is filled with so much symbolism from the God who created everything you see is so that when you live your daily life, you can't help but look around and see his fingerprint on everything. Oh, trees. And I know what that's, I know what that's about. My God died on a tree. Caves, empty tombs, rivers. I can't look at the ocean without thinking about how he casts my sin as far as the east is from the west. I can't go out at, at night and look at the stars in the sky and, 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 and not think about how he and his heavenly host is watching over everything that I do and he's caring for me in ways that I don't even know how to care for myself. Every component of creation has been designed to preach the good news of our God and his son, Jesus Christ. And this is why the angel is showing them all this stuff. The point is that everything, rivers, trees, the name on the foreheads, exterior light sources that are no longer needed, they remind us that Jesus is our source. You're living in a period of time right now where you need the sun to come up tomorrow, but there will come a day when you won't need the sun anymore. There was a time when ships, in order to sail to where they needed to go, they had to be able to see the stars to navigate. There will come a time when no one will need star charts anymore. There will come a day when we won't need to explore and wonder what's out there because we will fully understand and fully known and fully be known. And this is what's being promised. And so the invitation as we're gonna get into verse six here is, man, are you thirsty? Come and drink. Drink what Jesus is offering. Are you hungry? Come and eat the fruit that Jesus provides. Do you need to see clearly? You don't need external light sources to help shape how you're supposed to see the world. You don't need the news. You don't need a magazine. You don't need an influencer on social media. You need the Lord. You need the Holy Spirit to illuminate you and give you the perspective on things that you previously didn't have because you were in the dark so that you can start seeing clearly. This is, what, this is what the angel is saying in the first five verses. Let's get into verse six. He, see, <clears throat> excuse me. he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon, and blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Let's pause right there. The message, what is the message? The message is what we just learned about what's going to transpire in the next kingdom to come that should be a reality in the current kingdom now. It's true. It's going to happen. The prophets of old saw it. Before Jesus was ever born in a manger, Jeremiah saw it, Ezekiel saw it, Isaiah saw it, Zechariah saw it, and all of them declared what will come. Now John is in the same line of prophets proclaiming to us what is coming our way. Blessed is the person who believes it. 
But it wasn't just the prophets who proclaimed it, angels proclaimed it too. Heavenly messengers who don't live in this dimension with physical bodies, they live in a spiritual dimension and they serve God Almighty. They came over here to our house to deliver his message to us about what will take place. So the, invita- the, the question to us is like, what more do you need? Well, man, if, if like an angel showed up in my living room, then I'd believe. Well, I, I mean, I can show you stories in the Old Testament of angels who literally showed up in people's rooms and they had lunch with them and then the angels would tell them stuff and they're like, well, I don't know if I believe you. So like, why do you think that you're so different? Man, if I saw like a miracle, if I saw, man, if I saw like the Red Sea part, then I would believe. Really, I can show you two million people who watched that happen and then complained for the next 40 years of their life so that they didn't even inherit the promises of God. So we're convinced that, man, if we could just see things clearly, and the Bible's telling you, you don't need to see things clearly. Things have already been declared clearly, and what is required is you not to see some new fresh revelation or some angel to show up in your living room and tell you some new thing. What you need to do is believe what has already been spoken. You need to believe the prophets. You need to believe the angels. You need to trust what's in here and stop trying to find something new. What's fascinating to me is this invitation of who's blessed. Verse seven, behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And I made mention to this before. That word keep is a word that means pay attention. So he says anyone who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book doesn't just mean like, oh, okay, I heard it. It means hear it and obey it. It means what you read, now go live it. Don't just sit back and say, huh, now I know some things I didn't know before. Now go act on those things. Obey what you heard. But the coolest thing to me is how, and I've seen this in numerous commentaries, they refer to these, like verse seven, it says, blessed is the one who keeps. They refer to these as the beatitudes of revelation. And this book is filled with them. So what I did is I put together a slide so you could see some of these. Now, some of you uh, in the back, you may not be able to see these. I, I can post these later on Slack. If you're not on Slack, just come see me. I'll make sure that you get a copy through email. But I want you to see these. Revelation 1-3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Remember when Jesus was teaching in Matthew 5 on the Beatitudes? Jesus taught the Beatitudes again in Revelation. Revelation 14, 30, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. When they stand before the Lord, the kind of life that they lived here on earth, the righteousness they stood for, the name they proclaimed, those deeds are gonna follow them right into heaven and they're gonna stand boldly before the, before the Lamb and say, we gave our lives for you. 16:15 Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the land. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Blessed, blessed, blessed are the people who listen to this book and do what it says. But as I've said often, 
It's not enough to just read the book. You've got to let the book read you. And that's just another way of saying the same thing. Church people have a way of gathering together, eating a meal of the word, and saying, wasn't that filling? Let's do it again next week. And then that's the end of the story. That nothing in here ever really gets inside of you and turns you over and challenges you and changes you. There's no requirement of you to sacrifice or, or to, to tell yourself no to put yourself to death, to look at these things and say, if this is true, then this means I've got to sell some things. If this is true, then I mean I have to quit some things. If this is true, I have to stop watching that. If this is true, I can't partake of that. I can't enjoy that anymore. I can't give myself to the things that are being sold by Babylon and also claim that I am a citizen of the New Jerusalem. It is not enough to be a people who faithfully say, well, I'll listen to anything you have to say every week, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. There's a Bible word for that, it's called Pharisee. It is the people who are knowledgeable in the word of God, but expect everybody else to live it out, but they make excuses for themselves on why they don't live it out. This is a challenge, because when, when, the, when either an angel or Jesus is speaking to John and declaring these beatitudes, he's saying to you, blessed are those who are part of my family and don't just say it, but live it. Blessed are those who are part of my family who have been transformed by the power of the Lamb. Not just those who on the outside look like they're a part, but deep on the inside when the rubber hits the road, they, they have no allegiance. All it takes is one offense and they're gone. All it takes is one question that the enemy crafts in a very clever way where you just say, you know, I don't know if it's even worth it. All of it is, all it takes is one temptation where the serpent comes and offers you what you really want for you to forsake everything you've ever stood for because you just really want that thing that he told you you can't have but blessed are those who persevere to the end. Blessed are those who read the words of this book and obey them. Let's get into verse eight. It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. What are you doing, John? This is the second time you did this. Why are you worshiping angels? You did this in Revelation 19.10. But the angel said to him, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let's pause right there. John is so overwhelmed with what he hears, the good news that's contained in this message that he just watched. You, you mean to tell me That's what's coming our way, and when I say our way, I mean a group of people who in the first century are being fed to lions. My wife was crucified last week for her faith, and they turned her body into a candle to light the streets of Rome. You're telling me that my future is to live in a city where a a river of life flows through the middle of the city, and on either side of it is a tree. You're telling me that my inheritance 
if I persevere, is that I will see God face to face and I will live as one of his people among him with his name on my forehead. All right, I can persevere for that. John is so overwhelmed with this exciting image that he can share with his church that is currently in persecution that he just, he gets overwhelmed and he falls down and he worships a second time. He's worshiping creation over the creator. Now why does John record this? I think he records this because of how prevalent angel worship was in the churches of his day. I think he wanted people to understand how easy it is to convert admiration for something or someone into worship towards that thing. And even more so within the family of God when that person is proclaiming good news. We may be thinking like, I don't really understand that. I want you to think in terms of celebrity pastors. Oh, now I get what you're saying. There is a thing in the hearts of humans where we just want to elevate some people. We just, I want to live vicariously through that person. I can't, but he can, so mm, I'm going to live through him. And we see it in the life of the church. We see it really prevalent in culture, but we also see it in the life of the church because we borrow that stuff from Babylon and we bring it into the church. And John is demonstrating how easy this is, that when somebody is bringing good news, it is really easy to move from I am so grateful for the news, for the news to I am so grateful for you. If it wasn't for you, I would have never heard the news. You are, ama- you are really good at delivering the news. In fact, I can't hear the news unless you deliver it. I have a hard time hearing the word of God unless you're the one who's preaching it. It's good news, and man, I like hearing it from your mouth so much that I just can't hear it from anybody else's mouth. So much that I won't even, I I won't hear it from anybody else's mouth, even from my own mouth. I have stopped feeding myself on the word of God because you do it so good. I'll just just come every week and listen to you do it. Do Do you see what this is? John is demonstrating his weakness to fall down and worship an angel twice in the book to help us understand how easy it is. He was an apostle, he's the guy writing this book and he was the one who bowed down and worshiped. So we should just take pause and we should assess how easily we can become accustomed to that same kind of creation worship. It comes in many forms. It comes in, I've got to hear a worship song from this person or from this band or from this church or I've got to hear a message from this pastor. I can't hear anything unless it's from this person or I only listen to these specific people. Nobody else is saying anything good. My church is the only church who's doing everything right. You you see where I'm going with this? Creation worship, that's what it is. And what is the Bible's message to people who are prone to creation worship? Stop, worship God. Quit worshiping people, stop worshiping systems, quit worshiping routines, and worship God. But then after the rebuke, the angel tells John not to seal up this prophecy, he just 
um, was given. And the reason why is because this is a database reference back to Daniel 12.4. Daniel, at the end of his book, in the Old Testament, was told some of the very same things that John was shown about the end times, about what would transpire at the very end of this antichrist figure that would deceive the nations and how God would, would raise his people from the dead. All of this was talked about in Daniel, but the, but the messenger to Daniel says, seal up the words of this book because the time has not come. So when Daniel was given this message, the instructions were, I want this stuff on record, but the interpretation isn't for now, so seal it up. But then at the beginning of Revelation, we see the lamb, he's got the power to start opening seals, and now all of a sudden, this stuff that John was given, the angel instructs him, don't seal it up. Why is John instructed not to seal it up? Because Christ has broken the seals back in Revelation five and six, and his resurrection and the time of the end has come. We are living in the last days. Every day after Jesus got up out of that empty tomb, the early writers of the New Testament declared is the last days. This is it, we're living in the last days. The Christ event changed everything. And therefore, it's time to make a choice either get holy or stay filthy. Now get to verse 11, where this invitation begins. It says, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, and I am bringing recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Because outside of the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Verse 11 is a callback to the Exodus story and the issue of Pharaoh's heart. As many times as the Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we're told equal times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart but every time his heart was hardened by God or by Pharaoh, it was in response to something God had done. A plague was let loosed and Pharaoh had a response. Am I going to yield to his authority and accept his invitation to worship him as the one true God or am I gonna continue to bow down and worship my fake false gods? His heart hardened, but here's what's interesting. Every plague that was released softened somebody else's heart. Israel became more tender to the Lord as Egypt became harder to the Lord. 
So when John hears this declaration, let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do righteous and the holy still be holy, what he's talking about is the hardening or the softening that takes place when God demonstrates his power. We've had seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. There is no shortage of God declaring his sovereign power over his own creation as the only one who has the power to make judgments on mankind. And mankind, some of them will say, I believe you, I turn to you, I trust the lamb and not the dragon. But some, it doesn't matter what God demonstrates, they will only become harder. And so John says, in a day where God has not given any shortage of demonstration of his power, mankind has no excuse as to where they fall. You either stay righteous or you stay filthy because the offer has been extended. And then he says, behold, I am coming soon. Jesus is coming quickly and the invitation is that time is running out. And what's interesting here is the different ways of his coming plays itself out in Revelation. He is coming means his second coming. He literally is coming a second time to bring recompense upon the earth. But there's another way Revelation talks about him coming. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of the book, Revelation 2.5, Revelation 2.16. He will come and remove lampstands from his churches. He will come and make war against his enemies. That's Jesus talking. So there is a future date in which the second coming will take place. The lamb will return and everything was over. But up until that point, he's showing up among his churches a lot. And he promises, if you don't stay faithful to the teaching of the word, I will come to you and I will remove your status as a church in your city. I'll close your doors. I won't let you continue to be a false church. Therefore, Jesus makes this final plea. I am coming and I will be coming among my people. And he makes this final plea to those living on earth. It's time to make your choice. Come and drink. And this is what's so fascinating. There is a lot of righteous anger in the sun. There is a lot of war that is gonna be coming to earth. But we're not there yet. We're still in a time of mercy. He will come and he will rain fire on this creation and he will destroy the wicked and he will, he will bind up Satan and, and he, there's a lot he's going to be doing and we need to know that that is gonna happen but it isn't here yet. What is here right now is a time of mercy and while we know that these things are coming and we're living in that way, there is a sense that the people of God who know what's coming live with a peace and an invitation to the lost world. Hey, listen, you don't want any part of what's coming. So come and drink. Every Sunday morning, come and drink. Whenever you want, just open your word, come and drink. And this is verse 17. It says, the spirit and the bride say come.
and let the one who hears say, come, come Lord Jesus. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Jesus, come quickly, but lost sinner, come and drink. Weary believer, come and drink. Don't waste another day. There's a river of living water that will change your life. Come and drink. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone says, come and drink and pay my price, If anyone gives the invitation of the lamb and adds to it to pad their own wallet, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of his prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things say, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Here's the invitation for the end of the book. Not just the end of Revelation, but the end of the Bible. Come. Come, come, come and drink. Come to the river. Come to the manger. Come to the cross. Come to the empty tomb. There is no shortage of symbols that will speak to wherever you are. Come. Just Come, but coming to the Lord requires you forsaking something else. It's free, but it'll cost you a lot because you have to turn your back on everything in order to follow where he's leading. So the invitation is for all and it's free. The price has already been paid. The gift is just to unwrap it. Come, And I think for me, that's probably why I wanted to end Revelation around Christmas because I love the symbolism of this book and I love the symbolism of this season. This season is wrapped in symbolism and the world doesn't even know it. Why do you put a tree in your house? Because it was designed to remind you that your savior was hung on a tree. Why the lights? because it reminds us that one day, you won't need lights anymore. All of the symbolism of this season, the star on the top of the tree, the angels, the manger scene in your house over on the little corner desk, all of it is designed to reorient your minds. Even the gifts under the tree are designed to remind you that you have been given a gift. And the world wants to hijack that. No, 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 you gotta, you gotta go into debt. You gotta make sure your kid get everything that they want. You gotta impress your in-laws with the amount of money that you spend on these gifts. And the symbolisms get hijacked. But there's a reason why God and his ordained power orchestrated, at least for where we are right now, this season, to elevate Christ above everything else. Because this book is wrapped in symbolism and so is this season. And this season proclaims a powerful message that our God came once to bring salvation to the whole world. 
But that isn't the only message of the season. The other message of the season and the message of this book is he didn't just come once, he is coming again. And if you ignore him and reject his first coming gift, then his second coming will not be pleasant for you. But if you open that gift and you enjoy the fullness of your life being transformed, that when, he, when that last trumpet blows and he cracks the sky, that will be the greatest day of your life. And with that in mind, we all as a church say, Merry Christmas, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.